I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to a special episode of The Voice of Insurance, produced in association with Lloyd's. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is John Neal, CEO of Lloyd's, back on the show after an absence of more than two years. Back then, he described an ambition to put the Lloyd's halo back in place. Well, two full years of underwriting profitability later, and the market has regained a huge amount of its cachet and prestige, and begun to reap the rewards of its painful remediation process. But this podcast is as far as you can imagine from a triumphal romp through the market's considerable achievements of the past couple of years. It's about the here and now of this still transitioning market and the major opportunities it is throwing up for Lloyd's underwriters. It's also about a culture change on One Lime Street, engaging positively with and backing smart businesses with good ideas and being more principles rather than rules-based while at the same time remaining hyper-vigilant on any backsliding on hard-won improvements in rate and terms and conditions. And it's about delivery and leadership, delivery on tech reform and leadership on the big calls around systemic risk and on the massive challenges and opportunities being thrown up by ESG and the transition to net zero. We even make time to talk about the culture and work environment of the London market in the post-pandemic world. But I'll stop myself there because there's a danger that this introduction just becomes a shopping list of the topics we discuss. Take my word for it, we talk about literally everything on the global insurance and reinsurance agenda today, and nothing is off limits. But ultimately, this is a great opportunity to spend 45 minutes in a very relaxed and intimate conversation with the leader of a very important segment of our global insurance ecosystem. As you'd expect, he's in great form, and it's clear to me that he's growing in confidence. The confidence and conviction was already there before, but there's nothing like good results to add positive reinforcement. Here's someone who's getting through to the market and clearly feels he's going to be able to carry the market along with him to face the challenges of the future and do so from a position of relative strength. We haven't had a Lloyd's CEO in this sort of position for at least a couple of decades and that's why what he says here has more meaning than in the past. The fact is that because of the credible delivery of the objectives of the first phase of his tenure, John's thoughts about what comes next carry more weight than before. And that's why I highly recommend a detailed listen. Enjoy the podcast. John, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Mark's good to be here. Thanks for having me back. Hey. Well, it's, it was nearly two years ago. And obviously, huge amounts changed since then. Mm. We're up here on the 12th floor of Lloyd's. What's the feeling up here? What's the mood going into 2023? And what are your key objectives and the sort of milestones you're looking to get through this year? Well, it's a conversation you and I can have, but one that we need to be careful on publicly because. I think three things are at front of mind for me. One is discipline. We've worked really, really hard and the markets work spectacularly hard to get performance in great shape. And it is in good shape. 21 results, terrific. When people see our 22 results, I think they will acknowledge that we've got to where we wanted and where we needed to be. So the answer is we've got to maintain that discipline. If we now understand price, if we understand risk, if we understand exposure management, then let's not put ourselves back in the situation we were in 2016, 2017. We'll come back to a bit of that, what the opportunities are in a moment. That's one. Two's execution. We've just got to get stuff done. I think people are starting to believe that we can execute, particularly when we think of the digital agenda. So let's finish the job in 23. So that's part two. And then obviously take people on that journey with us. So when we talk about digitalization, it's about people adopting, participating in the solutions that are put in place. And number three, I think is show some leadership. Whether it's culture at one end of the spectrum or the debate around climate transition at the other, let's maintain and develop our leadership position. So those are the three things, discipline, execution, leadership. 
I've got a feeling we're going to be hearing a lot about discipline, cycle management, that kind of thing. But at the moment, we're at the really good point of the cycle, aren't we? Obviously, not sitting around smoking cigars and ordering fine champagne. But at the same time, should we make sure that we do enjoy the top end of the cycle? And by enjoy also, I mean, make the absolute most of it and put the foot down, perhaps. Is that the right sort of feeling? Obviously, there is a break. The break's nearby, but you, you can be happy to be accelerating into something that you know is a nice, clear road ahead and make the most of that while you can and make time. Well, Mark, you're right. I put a slide up with our senior leadership group of the last 200 years of history and said there are three times in that 200 years when insurance has mattered. Only three. And I'll be boring. 1850 to 1870, the world's at civil war with itself and you've got the reset of the landmass as we know it today, the legacy of two world wars and now. So we've seen financial struggles, financial crises. We've seen systemic risk represented through COVID. We're talking about climate. We're talking about war. If you add it all up, people are anxious about risk. Businesses, governments, communities, we matter. Insurance really matters. And people are prepared to pay for insurance. So I'd love to be underwriting today because I think it's one of the great times to be an underwriter, to be taking opportunity. And if you drop that back, I think you've seen the sort of output of our planning approvals for 23. You know, Lloyd's in 2023 will grow by more than 20%. Some of the decisions we took to back smart people, the Inigo team moving into year three, I mean, making money already, that's a billion dollar syndicate. AIG putting their high net worth business into Lloyd, structuring that differently, that's a billion dollar syndicate. People like Brit and the key syndicate talking about algorithmic different underwriting, that is a billion dollar syndicate. So I think we've tried to be smart and back the people who've got good ideas, good thinking and want to make a difference. And we've got to keep doing that. Also, you've had some graduates from the syndicate in the box. Yeah. And certainly that's been attracting new entrants as well. So I think at the time there was probably some scepticism around that when that was launched, what, three, three or four years ago? There was. If you think about it, you look at the way in which we now say we want to oversee the market principles-based. We had 650 rules. That is not a way to respect and value the participants in a marketplace. So we've changed the way in which we look at oversight. We've tried to think differently about new entrants and create pathways for people to come into the marketplace. We've tried to think about capital structure. So you think of London Bridge, ILS Capital, you know, very, very slow, I think we were in London to think about how ILS could work in London versus how it's worked so well in Bermuda. So I don't think it's job done, but I hope people looking at us think we're open-minded. We're trying to understand the problem someone wants to solve and work out how we can help. When I interviewed Patrick Tin, and that was probably 18 months ago already, obviously we'd had that very disciplined time, the Decile 10 time, sure. and he wanted to signal a change to say, the prize for being top quartile during that period of, of remediation was probably just to be left alone. Yeah. That was a nice prize then. But he wanted to signal a change about 18 months ago to say, why should that prize just being left alone? Couldn't we be more proactive with some of our top quartile people to help grow their businesses, to see what we could do to help them? And perhaps obviously that's now being perhaps reflected in this potential new regime we're going to have at a higher level at the FCA and PRA level to be, well, why don't you be a bit more proactive yeah. about you know, promoting the competitiveness of, of the market that you are regulating, perhaps the growth of that market as you're regulating. Anyway, but is there any kind of fruit of that in terms of that we could say that's happened in the last 18 months in terms of what could you point to and say, we've been more proactive than we used to be, at least, rather than just leaving good people alone, have we been more engaging with them? I think genuinely the answer to the question is yes. And actually, Patrick, and he was probably being a little humble, has led the way in those conversations. So last year, we began the process with council saying, well, what does good profitable growth look like? 
And Patrick's put his marker down and begun those conversations with the marketplace to turn around and say, are there areas where we could represent an ability to be more solution oriented, more tailored in the way in which we go about our business? So how do we promote better capability for reinsurance in the market? And he's led a couple of conversations around programs that have found their way into London that wouldn't otherwise have been there. Big tick. He's talking about our capability to serve multinational clients, something everyone thinks we do, but we don't do. He's talking to EOPA and the Europeans about how we could better represent the surplus capability of London as it is in the US, in Europe. So I think we are beginning to say, well, what does good look like and how can we be better? And we do that, I think, off secure ground. So the performance framework and changes we've gone through is not once and done. I think we've got a sustainability framework. We know what good performance looks like and we'll keep at that which is allowing, I think, Patrick to play both sides to say, what does good performance look like? How do I promote and encourage the right type of growth? And he's doing both. Well, you mentioned about reinsurance there, and obviously we couldn't have a podcast today without talking about reinsurance. We've had a, a monumental one, one. I know, unfortunately, we couldn't have our meeting at the Monte Carlo, but I did a whole series of podcasts at Monte Carlo with all and sundry, predicting that for the first time that they were really going to stand firm. Even the brokers were saying that the reinsurers were going to stand firm. Everyone's still slightly sceptical as, as that quarter went on, but we've really seen a genuine reset in reinsurance, yep. a very significant like of which we haven't seen since 2005, 2006. Yep. And Lloyd's share of reinsurance has probably waned over time. There's all sorts of different reasons probably behind that and the capital reasons and other things. But do you think now there's an opportunity to regain some of that share now that the market is so good? I think to deal with both aspects of what you're saying, I, I think the Good news in inverted commas with the change in the reinsurance market, it was really well telegraphed. It had been such a long time, no one actually believed oh, it until they well, saw it. It had been three years coming in, the, if we're generous. But I think, I think from the second half of 2022, we knew it was coming. So I think the good news from our planning point of view and setting ourselves up for 23, genuinely no real surprise coming through yet. And I'll come back to yet because I don't think the job is done. So you know, if we talk about property cap programs up by between 30 to 70% on average, depending on where they're at and what they're doing, I don't think that should have surprised anyone. I think the toughening around terms and conditions and the limitations of some aspects of cover, particularly as we now look out to specialty lines or we look out to riots and civil commotion and war implications, is the area that's making people scratch their heads a little bit. I think that's net, net good net net good because i think it creates a bit more sustainability around good performance in the marketplace part two your question's right the lloyds i grew up with and as you and i were sitting down i said i'm beginning to feel flipping old these days <laughs> but the lloyds i grew up with was a credible reinsurance market we're not today we're not a reinsurer 15 percent of our income is reinsurance 10 percent first party five percent second party so i think we've got to take a step back and say what are we doing that's not allowing people to consider reinsurance business being underwritten at lloyd's you know is the way in which we've put our principles around underwriting management an inhibitor i think in some respects the answer to that must be yes I think we've also got to sit down with the market and say, how can the market represent itself as a credible reinsurer? And is that consortium led? Is that providing some sort of more facilitized reinsurance capacity? The answer to both those questions must be yes. You know, if you're a buyer of reinsurance and I bought reinsurance for a long time, you're not going to buy it from 40 people anymore. So I think we've got to represent our offering very differently and we've got to support that. Are we interested in doing that? Absolutely, yes. I suppose the big insurers have all got much bigger and they've centralised all of their insurance buying. 
they're working with quite a small number of counterparties, aren't they, these days? They are. I mean, if you were one of the big buyers buying reinsurance, you're going to look for, and I'm making the number up, five key strategic partners. You're not yeah. looking for 20. But we've got the components, but we've got the ability to provide the type of capacity they want, number one. Number two, we've put the capital frameworks and alternate structures in place. We talked briefly about London Bridge 2 and ILS that didn't exist before, so that's quite interesting. Number three, the only UK domicile for captives is Lloyd's. Today, we don't need any approvals. It's already pre-approved. So could we have some smart conversations about reinsurance around how we could construct capacity, how we could look at captive structures, alternate capital? The answer is yes. Are we open-minded? Your point about Patrick earlier on, and I think he was trying to say that to you when he spoke to you, definitively yes. So we're ready, willing, and able to have those conversations. Well, that's really interesting. Of course, Lloyd's of today is, is more of a buyer of a reinsurance than the seller. And obviously, those core classes have been affected very much by that reset. Perhaps some of those core classes were buying reinsurance on a composite sort of basis. And now, presumably, some of those lines have to stand alone, particularly the sort of marine-based war and, and strike rights yep. and civil commotion type lines. And perhaps there would have been a lot of dabblers in those lines within this market or followers. Yep. Is there going to be a sort of a bit of a shakeout of that, a shakeout to the core leaders, the ones that can write some of those lines on a standalone basis and retain more, for example? I think so. When I grew up in this market, you're buying reinsurance, you couldn't buy unlimited vertical covers and unlimited sideways covers. I mean, they didn't exist. You couldn't even buy inflation-protected reinsurance. You had to buy severe inflation clauses if you really wanted to deal with the inflationary pressure on a claims bill. So it's like everything. I'm not saying history is repeating itself, but the limitation of some sideways covers feels inherently logical to me. If we take two steps back off that, it helps with the discipline that we need to maintain on our underwriting. And when I look at some of the underwriting issues that we're dealing with that we'll probably cover off, you look at DNO pricing. Really? People reducing pricing on DNO? Madness. Absolute madness. The price on DNO needed to go up by something in the order of 40 to 50%. It might have gone up by 60. Can the price come off by 20 points? No. Cyber was not making money. Great class of business, fantastic opportunity. We were sat here in 2018 saying we really, really have to crystallize and explain the product and the service better, but we've got to understand the risk, the exposure and price it properly. So worked really hard to get that right. Can the price come off on cyber? No. Reinsurance has got a role to play in helping with the discipline of ensuring we don't go back into 2016, 2017. So reinsurance has got its stick out and it's pretty yeah. caused a few welts and bruises around the market. But that usually tends to throw up opportunity. It does. So where are you seeing the best opportunities generally for Lloyd's underwriters? We tend to look at everything through our own lens, don't we? We tend to look at it through a London lens. If you think of London and what we do, half of what we do comes from North America, 44% from the US, 6% from Canada. So, you know, 50 cents in every dollar is brackets US derived business. No surprise. That's the reality of the world today. Do I think the domestic US insurers have got all of the capacity? all of the capital and all of the reinsurance placements they need for 2023? I don't think that at all. So I think we are looking, per your earlier remarks, at a marketplace and an opportunity that is going to change in front of our eyes through the April renewals, through the June renewals, through the July renewals. So I genuinely take my hat off to those that are ahead of the curve, thinking about the capital they might need and raising some of that capital. So when I saw Adrian and Beasley stick their hand up and say, we need some capital, I thought, applause, well done, because I think that is exactly the right way to interpret the opportunity that's ahead of us. And we think that's going to happen a bit more universally. So I think 
Adrian ahead of the curve, so all congratulations to him. We're going to see more of that. June, July, is there enough capacity and capital to support the ambition and the expectations of buying insurance in the Southeast US? No way. So I think you're going to see a dramatic shift. So you're definitely an incrementalist. Obviously, there was movement at the mid-year last year, and obviously we've had this big movement at 1-1, but you think that's going to carry on rolling through 1-4, 1-6, 1-7? I think it is. And I, and I think in some ways, roughly what? 60% of the world's property cap reinsurance is placed at 1-1. So you've got such a predominance of property-based reinsurances being placed. You've not seen the same reaction to casualty, let alone specialty. So we saw price increase, probably single digit on casualty. We saw a reduction in proportional placement, but not much else. The inflationary pressures are really, really hard on the casualty book. And I don't think that's yet been manifested through some of the reinsurance reaction. Specialty, and you mentioned some of it, riot, civil commotion, war, and I think that's all yet to play out. So more to come, I think. More to come. And actually, on that capital raising front, if we were sitting here in 2006, I'd have been frazzled from all the reporting I'd have to do on sidecars and eight or nine new startups and just running around trying to get phone numbers for all these new CEOs who are wandering around with a billion dollars in their pocket. That hasn't happened this time. But what has happened, certainly, it would appear that London's, for example, you mentioned the BC capital raise, mm, that mm. London has been able to access capital perhaps when others haven't. Is that something you're proud of? That to say, well, is that testament to our, some of the hard yards we did three or four years ago? I think and I hope that we're beginning to put London back where it should be. Yes, obviously, it's not my job to try and trick you and saying <laughs> no, something triumphalistic. No, so no, it's not triumphalistic. I don't want to do that. So what we do for a living here, corporate and specialty insurance and reinsurance is not easy. And I think London, when it's been at its best, has demonstrated an ability to lead performance in that respect. I think we're getting back there. And if we get back there, we have to stay there. So one thing we try and do, I think perhaps slightly differently to the Lloyds of old, is have those conversations directly with investors. So, you know, in Burkhard Kisa, we've got a CFO who's got the credentials to be able to do that. And our sense is there is genuine interest from capital in investing in insurance. They want to see that the performance is sustainable. So they want to see that 22 repeats 21. They want to be convinced that the discipline remains in place for 23. They don't like volatility. That's the problem with investors. And of course, our industry is nothing if not volatile. So I think the capital is there. I think we've just got a little bit of proving to do, and that might take another quarter. But my sense is you'll see a lot more of what you're used to seeing time past as we go into the second half of the year. Well, I suppose the first proof point is going to be the annual results. 100%. Obviously, we're in the middle of the season. I mean, are you worried about a flood? Probably not. It doesn't sound like you're worried about a flood. It's a slow convincing that the insurer's story is true. I find these conversations so difficult because you feel as if you lack humility. It's a bit like your conversation earlier on say, is it a good time to be in insurance? And you want to scream, yes. But you think, I better not say that too loudly. I certainly better not say that in a pub on a Friday. Well, don't tell everybody else. You yeah. know, you see, you think, oh, I don't want to say that. And, and of course, when you look at the loss activity that's been kicking around in the early part of the year, I think, again, as the markets understood risk and how to price risk differently, we just haven't got the exposures. So we look at the floods in New Zealand that are desperate. That's yeah. a domestic loss. And it's not really that big a loss. You look at Storm Elliot going through the US. It's gone through states that are well used to coping with winter weather. So it's not particularly a notable loss. If you went back 20, 25 years and you looked at earthquake exposures in Turkey, you probably found 40 to 50% market share in London. Today, it's four or five. So I think we really have 
learnt how to understand risk, accept what is attritional, what is large, what is cat, and price and think about it accordingly. It's not a conversation you need to have with you, Mark, but you sort of think of national press and you think of natural catastrophe. I'm saying if 23 repeats 22, the last seven years, including 23, will have cost a trillion dollars for natural catastrophe losses. And that's what we expect. So as a market, we're kind of used to that. And hopefully at today's pricing, we should all still be personally profit this time next year, even if that happened. I may get shot for saying this, but I think one of the aspects I'm most proud of at Lloyd's is getting that discipline back. I don't think you can post a three-digit combined ratio anymore. Why would you do that? You know, you really should understand the components of your P&L. And it's going to take a very, very extreme situation, in my view, to be posting a combined ratio excess of 100. Brackets, not acceptable. Not acceptable. Not under any circumstances? Well, I think you'd need to see pretty extreme cat activity. You'd need to see the triple threat come through to, to cope with that. If you see what we've seen in the last couple of years, 150 to $160 billion of cat-related activity, should we be able to price for that and still produce a combined ratio in two figures? Yes. Because Florida has a very big coast and it's got lots of property on it and hurricanes hit it all the time. Indeed. So Indeed. we should know that. Indeed, we should know that. <laughs> you had mentioned about the resurgence in competition. Some classes have been particularly more, perhaps the poster child has been DNO that's mm. been on that roller coaster ride. And perhaps people blame perhaps there weren't enough IPOs. They budgeted for lots of IPOs and then the IPO market shut and then they weren't getting the income of all these sort of SPAC IPOs that they were getting the year before. Obviously, you can listen to all these stories from people, but presumably they're not going to hold any truck with you. You're just going to say, no. well, just show me the money then. Well, you know my background. I grew up more with casualty than property. So it's dangerous ground when I talk about property. Casualty is complex. And I think when we talk about discipline, we've really, really got to understand exposure and price expectations. And it's taken quite a lot to correct. We use the two examples, DNO and cyber. So I think we've got to call it out. We have got to call it out. It makes no sense having worked hard to get DNO pricing to where it is to start reducing pricing. Oh, and by the way, We've got a wave of litigation coming for climate. Of course we have. We know that. So we cannot, cannot think that pricing can reduce for the class. Do we think there's a huge opportunity for cyber to grow to a 50 to $60 billion market within a reasonable time period? The answer is yes. Do we need to articulate the value proposition? Yes. Do we need to do that by reducing the price? No. So I think at the center, we've got a job to call that out and we will call it out. And if that annoys people, then fine. Certainly readjusting the price of cyber sharply upwards has not reduced demand in any measurable sense, has it? Not at all. If I take a bad day, what we've got to get a lot better at doing, and we've had the evidence of that, is we've got to get a lot better at explaining the cover and the service that we're giving. And I don't just mean the brokers, I mean the underwriters as well. So with cyber, we had to take two steps back and really be much more articulate around the covers being offered. And ensure we didn't repeat the challenges we had with business interruption, where you've got a lack of clarity around what cover was being given. So I think having given that clarity, then the interest is there. So we know the interest is there to buy the cover. And I think we need to be satisfied that we can perform and that we can price the cover at a level that we can make a return. It matters to the customer. The customer needs us there next year. So it's no good dropping the price by 20 points and losing money again. I was at a cyber conference in Q4 last year, and they were predicting that cyber would be the largest single risk code at Lloyd's. I don't know if that's actually going to be true or not, but I might as well ask you. I think there's every chance, every chance it could be. It's not quite there yet, I hasten to add. There's every chance it could be. Having said that, when we look at data, 
we're looking at the penetration of insurance, both life and non-life, is set to double in the next decade. That's not happened for 50 years. So we are actually seeing a perception and understanding of risk, a need for businesses and communities to have confidence and therefore buy more insurance. So I think cyber is going to grow, but I think a lot of other classes will grow as well. So we'll see. I suppose what cyber didn't have as it matured, it didn't have a cat market, it didn't have a proper reinsurance market, certainly had a reinsurance market, but it was a more primary reinsurance market, it didn't have a remote, very large loss reinsurance market. No. And it seems to be developing that for itself, which would bode well, one presumes, for, for long-term prospects. I think so. And I'm sort of sympathetic to some of the voices you hear around cyber. So if I was one of the big global insurers with a big SME book, I would feel very nervous about cyber because of the systemic exposure that would sit in my book. Which is why being an insurer of cyber, we've turned around and been, I think, pretty strong on some of the things we've said. No silent cyber. Let's be really clear when cyber is being given. Yeah. Some people have been critical of us of saying, look, when we look at systemic state-sponsored cyber, we should be really careful in terms of the extent of cover we give. Why? Well, because there's not enough money in the world to pay for that loss. So let's not put ourselves in a situation where forever we're debating at the point to claim whether there was cover or not. I've, I've had enough of all Ultimately, of that. that's fraud anyway, isn't it? I mean, oh, saying that you can pay just... a loss when you really don't know what it is. I mean, to me, that's the business interruption legacy, isn't it? I don't want to be having the debate at the point that the claim is made. We want to re-earn our spurs with the customer that they know what cover they've got and they know when they have a claim that we'll be there to deal with the loss as quickly as we can. Big part of your job is to think about Lloyd's as an entity, as a marketplace and its position in the world. How do you feel you're doing at the moment in terms of relevance, share, that kind of thing? Stuff that you have to go off into your boardrooms and strategize about and think about and have away days about. The kind of long-term picture. My view is that we're in pretty good shape. And when I talk to brokers, I say, well, here is a market that has stood up. Okay, it hasn't necessarily put the price that everyone wanted, but it's been here when other people have walked away. It is also access capital that other people yeah. haven't been able to access. You feel like you're in a good place? So if I take the opposite view, i.e. not being triumphalist and being defeatist, I've read some defeatist comments that I don't understand. I read a report last night, actually, which was sent to me by a particular advisor for investors in South Africa who sent me a report he'd written in 2012. He'd got some interesting macro data there around Lloyd's market share of global insurance. The answer was 2%. So everyone says we've been reducing irrelevance. I don't think we have, actually. I think we dream up data. If you think about it, Lloyd's is not in place to compete with local markets. That's not our job. You know, is the German market credible? Are the French market credible? Of course it is. The beauty we've always had in the US is the concept of admitted and surplus. So where there is a need for expertise or capital or different innovative thinking, Lloyd's should add value. And that's where our debate needs to go. How can we continue in that vein and therefore continue our relevance? So do I think outside of my time, do I think we could see a Lloyd's marketplace that's knocking on the door of 80 to 100 billion of gross written premium. I, I do, but I do it against the backdrop of a global life and non-life insurance market that's probably worth four or five trillion. So I think we've got a role to play. I don't think the value of that role is diminished. I genuinely think as markets look in on us, as customers look in on us, they do value what we're able to do out of London and out of Lloyd's. Well, let's talk about some of those tech reforms that you've been mentioning. I mean, I think the phrase you used was rubber hitting the road last time we spoke. Oh, dear. Well, rubber can hit the roads in all sorts of ways, but it's sort of slightly skidded a bit. And, and yeah. perhaps it's more like, the, you know, like the beginning of a drag race. Some of that rubber was now left on the road rather than on the tyre. I don't know. I get another feel that this year is a year of delivery. So I think you probably you have said that. Certainly there are a lot of deadlines this year. Are you comfortable that they're all going to be hit? 
not stressed about it at all, which I could regret saying that, couldn't I? So if we get a bit technical and boring for a moment, we've got a, a build framework around the mid and the back office that supports the London market, not just Lloyd's. There are five sequences to it. Two sequences are done. So we've got critical sequences three and four and five this year. We needed to ensure that the placement solutions were credible. Could PPL represent their next iteration and generation? The answer is yes. Can we align PPL to the way in which our Blueprint 2 thinking is going? I think you've seen the commentary from the leadership there. The answer is yes. Can we put a framework in place for delegated authority underwriting that actually makes sensible, credible sense? Yes, it's actually alive and well. The good news for me is not the tech delivery bit, which I always thought was our responsibility and we could do. What I'm really encouraged by is the interest in adoption, because that's ultimately where the success comes from. Can we get everybody, 100 insurance companies and 200 broking firms to want to adopt the change? And that, I think, is where it's hard. I don't get any sense of a lack of willingness. Are we going to have to help and lean in? I think the answer is yes. Do I therefore think we can do our bit in 23, yes. Do I think it's going to take us 23, 24 to get exactly where we want and need to be? Yes, I do. Long overdue. Yeah, my 50 cents would be that 20 years ago, and when we talk about you know, 15 years ago, one of your predecessors wanting to abolish the white vans going down to Chatham. Was, that was, <laughs> it was almost the outrage. It was, the, I think, the electronic claims file was supposed to solve that and the EPAN and a few other things. But we've moved on a lot further from that. Perhaps the small brokers would have been the blocker 20 yeah, years ago because yeah. the big brokers perhaps would see it as a political thing, as a way of saying, well, this is a great barrier to entry, actually, because we can afford 100 million for this program, but we know all the small brokers can't and they're going to have to come to us or something's going to have to happen. We can end up owning the market. And the broker, the small brokers, will dig their heels and say, well, not over my dead body. This is not fair. These days, when I talk to a small broker, they're sort of looking upon this more like a developing country's saying, great, I've got mobile technology today. I don't have to put a load of copper wires in my cities and towns anymore. It seems to be the attitude has changed. You won't have to have a stick. You'll need to have a lead because they're going to be pulling you along. That's my sense, certainly, that they're impatient to change rather than digging their heels in and not wanting to change anymore. I agree. I, I think what's been exciting for me, and I, I'll sort of give you a personal anecdote and then credit where credit's due because credit is certainly not here, is we needed to get a proper understanding of data and being boring as the motor underwriter, you've got to have a core data record. You've got to have some uniformity around the structure of your contracts to allow it to go from quote to bind to technical account, all that boring stuff. So if you grow up in the world I grew up, I mean, that is a no brainer, but you think, can we get everyone to that place? And the answer is we have, and that's really neat. But where the credit's due and the credit's due, yes, to the team that Bob James is leading, I think, in terms of the digital framework. But I think credit's also due to the market. The data council that Sheila Cameron chairs is brilliant. Conversations they're having, the leadership they're showing, the unanimity with approach, the determination to make the change is fantastic. So it really isn't just about us. I hope and think we've got the team on the pitch that people have confidence in. But I think credit where credit's due, it is with people like Sheila Cameron, it is with market leaders who've said this makes every sense. And that's half the battle, isn't it? You know you won't get everything perfectly right from the get-go, but if people want you to succeed and are leaning in, then you're three quarters of the so way do you down. think we're getting closer to the prize of having a low administrative expense ratio? So when I took on the role at Lloyd's in 2018, I had a chat with Bruce Carnegie-Brown and said, do you mind if I go and ask a few questions around the place as to what people want us to do. And I wanted to ask the questions here critically as to what people felt. I also wanted to ask people in the US and Europe. And I think you know, because I think you and I have chatted about this before, three things came back really clearly. Number one, sort out performance. 
you just cannot carry on and not show market leading performance. So tick will do that. Number two, sort out the cost of doing business. We created a disadvantage. Our costs had gone up by 10 points in 15 years. So the challenge was, yeah, it's down to us to decide what costs we're prepared to pay, but give us a framework that's different. And then number three, we show some leadership. So I think the digital piece is fired at the middle ground. It's not our job to turn around and say, this is what brokers should earn, or this is how much your business should cost to run. But we've got to give people the flexibility that they can make those decisions for themselves. And I think we are. I want to talk about a couple of worries. You've mentioned about inflation Mm. a couple of times. Again, obviously, we're in an inflationary time. Perhaps the last time we spoke, maybe inflation was still within central government targets. It has spiked incredibly quickly. I mean, not spiked because we hasn't come down yet. So Mm. Mm. us journalists are guilty of of using that word. What we mean is a sharp increase. And and a spike is actually a sharp increase followed by a sharp decrease. We're hoping for a sharp decrease. But how worried are you about that? And how vigilant are you on that? Particularly looking at back year reserves and thinking... Well, I hope inflation's all ready to go in there and that it was in there. Obviously, on live business, you have an annual opportunity to revalue everything and reprice everything. And perhaps it's not such a worry. But how much of a worry is it from here on the 12th floor when you're looking at the market as a whole? So I'll give three bits to the answer. Bit one is to say, isn't it great to be doing business in a real economy? Because it's a long time since that's been a reality. Do you want an economy that can grow? Do you want an economy that has interest rates? And do you want an economy that has inflation? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. Because then you're in a real world. So we've operated for 20 years in a nonsensical environment. Zero inflation, interest rates zero, or some bits inflation was negative, and limited growth. So I think the macro story is good. The challenge is the change from where we were at to where it looks like we're going to be, which I think is where your question's going. Because I think inflation has always been the friend of the insurer. We're pretty good at adjusting price for inflation. And unlike life assurers, we do get to reprice the policy every 12 months. So we've got a reasonable crack at getting it right. So that's been the challenge. Our view, and we're going obviously through our year-end processes, the comfort I can give you and anyone that's listening is, Everybody has looked at inflation, and I mean everybody. There are no exceptions. We're looking at roughly three quarters have made some adjustment considerations to loss picks and therefore the reserves they're carrying in their balance sheet for inflation. 25% feel comfortable that they're there or thereabouts. I might have a different view. I might think it should be 100% and making some adjustments, but everyone's thinking about it. So I don't think we're going to get caught with our trousers down is the answer to that question. So the part two bit is, are we alert to the issue? And do we feel comfortable that people are addressing it? I think that bit is right. Part three, and I think you know I'm a bit of an optimist by nature, so temper what I'm going to say. you can't be an underwriter without being an optimist. You, you can't. I don't feel as bad about world economics as everyone else. I mean, credit where credit's due in the US, and everyone has a bit of a crack and a pop at Biden. He's done a pretty impressive job, I think, in his term as president. I think many, many aspects of his thinking, and certainly economically, has been good. US actually looks in pretty good shape. And I think in the UK, we want to see the proof of the pudding. You know, you've got the prime minister out there saying inflation is going to be 5% by the end of the year. Well, I think the credentials are in place to see inflation better under control than it is at the moment. Yeah, I mean, yes, we need to see it play out, but I don't feel negative. But take the macro step back. Is back to where we started the conversation. Not a bad time to be an insurer. And of course, if you've got the pricing momentum, which can cover any sins in the back years. 
presumably these knock-on effects of notional market-to-market losses are going to start washing through at some point, probably in this year, isn't it? Some next year, they might be reporting very positive investment returns rather than negative ones. All things being equal, the answer is yes. I mean, you get me going on accounting. And I have to qualify that by saying my first two years in business life were training to be an accountant. So I think I can legitimately applaud accountants and the value they give us. Mark-to-market price variance accounting is nuts in my view. (laughs) And you end up with stupidity in the way in which you represent the value of an asset when you've not looked to sell that asset. So you end up with crazy investment considerations in 2022, which then pay back in 23, 24, 25. IFRS accounting is equally as dumb, but we'll save that. I suppose at some point, but you've got to measure it somehow. And of course, if there was a trillion dollar hurricane tomorrow, of course, everyone would have to sell those assets to pay the loss. So they would have to take that loss, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, I don't know, you see, because I think you've gone to the right thing. You've got capital, you've got solvency, and you've got liquidity. And the legacy of solvency too. And even if you look at us at the moment, 38% of Lloyd's assets are held in cash. 38 in cash. So there's no liquidity issue that we're trying to deal with. But I think it is what it is. The good news is that the investor community out there does understand the reality of mark-to-market accounting and does distinguish between a cash profit and the written down profit. But you're right. I mean, if you look at the forward forecast numbers, and we'll debate whether it's appropriate to issue a forecast for Lloyd's in 2023 or not, the investment return numbers could be really quite exciting. So for the first time for 15 years or more, an underwriter or let's say the CEO or manager of a business is looking at the ability to perform on both sides of the P&L. But it doesn't mean that you're going to let them write to 104 combined and make loads of money on no, investments. No way. <laughs> Not no. like the old days. No way. We need to talk about ESG, I think, because again, that's probably been the largest three-letter acronym to surface since we last spoke. Been a lot of interesting work around companies with good ESG scores being assessed as perhaps being probably better insurance risks. What do you think about that? And there's been some quite interesting work around that. It sounds as if someone cares about lots of parts of their business and the way it's governed and, and the way it works in society and the way it affects the environment. One presumes they're probably quite good at stopping having insurance losses as well. Yeah. It makes a common sense kind of correlation, but do you think there's been enough evidence for it? Last point first, and then go through the rest. So no, there's not enough evidence <laughs> that the principles of what you're saying must be right. A business that's data-based and wants to be meticulous around its decision-making and wants to have its decisions proved. So is the analysis in place to support our decision to invest in X or commit to Y? I think that's just good business management. So the businesses that you're seeing that really do want to understand their scope one, scope two emissions and work out how on earth they're going to calculate scope three in terms of climate transition, by definition, they're pretty grown up in the way in which they're thinking. So I think it's a good thing. Yes. I think the challenge we've all got is what does consistent, good, accurate and fair measurement look like? Because the risk is that we end up with so many different ways to measure transition. And we're in the middle of that at the moment. To, To be really clear, I think climate transition, everything that's related to it, will be one of the biggest single opportunities the market's ever seen. If there's going to be genuine, incredible investment publicly and privately, a new infrastructure. Hello, it needs insurance. That's dead exciting. So we kind of want to be in the middle of that, which is why you hear us talking about being the insurer of transition and genuinely being the insurer of transition. Yes, that does mean we need to see that transition is credible and can happen against whatever measures are being put in place. That will change, I think. You'll see a greater harmony between the debates on nature and biodiversity and climate. It all needs to come back together rather than be pulled apart. But I think there's a really important role for us to play in that respect. And, And that is 
both in terms of the exciting renewable thinking that's going on, but, but also in terms of the legacy. I don't yeah. think we can afford to ignore the legacy. So I think net, net good. The thinking, the precision, the need to report, be held to account, it's all good. And in terms of your role overseeing a market, we've got a difficult decision around standards. We're at this kind yep. of Betamax VHS kind of moment where a whole load of new standards are vying for our attention. And then you could play a role there, perhaps, you know, because of course, we all know we're going to need them. Yep. Because when you've got 100 different managing agents and 100 different syndicates, and you've got 200 different brokers, and everyone needs an ESG statement and score or something, then that methodology or that endorsement of something that's already out there, perhaps, could be something in your hands, couldn't it? Agreed. Because otherwise, it was going to be Agreed. a certain amount of chaos, isn't it? Because there's I mean, no conformity. Marsh Broker will rock up with 50 questions in this format, and then an AM one will come about five minutes later with something else. And then each insurer and reinsurer will want different formats and it'll be an absolute nightmare and it won't work. So I think at the moment it is a nightmare because what you've just described, Mark, is exactly what's happening. Do you think you've got a role to play there in sort of untying all these knots? Yes. I think we've got a role where we can give the market some appropriate air cover. And we've tried to say that by saying, look, we're happy to be held to account in the aggregate. And there are plenty of people that want to hold us to account. So We've required each managing agent to present their report to us on a preliminary basis of ESG. We're going through the process now of saying, this is what we think good looks like, and this is how we benchmark you against that standard. So we've begun the reporting process so we can collect the data. In terms of has anybody yet found the right framework for reporting, the answer is no. It worries us a little bit that maybe too much of the reporting is retrospective. What is the embedded footprint in your balance sheet? Incredibly interesting. It's going to take you two years to work it out, but it doesn't really help, which is we're trying to get to net zero. So no one yet has really thought through intelligently what the path to net zero looks like. We're trying to work that one out and we're trying to work with all the parties that are looking at that sensibly. And I think, and I mean this appropriately, we just need to take our time. I don't mean that takes five years over it, but I think if it takes us 2023 into early 24 to get this right, then let's do that. Because to your point, what we don't need is broker A and insurer Z issuing 106 questionnaires, which is what's happening a little bit. Yeah, I can imagine. So we've just got to take a step back on some of this. So the idea is, yes, I think we've got a role to convene and represent. And by the way, brackets, that should be financial services, not just insurance. And I think we can stand up and have a voice in that respect. But let's not hurry, because if we hurry, we'll get to the wrong answer. And on the IT infrastructure side, you need to build the infrastructure to be able to ingest all that data and present it in a meaningful way. And I think try and be smart around it. So what data do we collect already to price a risk that would give us a very clear indicator of the footprint that risk is creating? Do we know this is going to have to change over time? Yes. So let's just be a bit careful around what we're asking for. Something else we've spoken about, now hopefully the pandemic is Mm. fully behind us, fingers crossed, majorly there. Obviously, Lloyd's has the room and that has put you at the centre of this debate about what are we going to do with it, how are we going to use it. How's your thinking advanced now that we're hopefully in a post-pandemic environment? It feels much more normal. Mm. It feels more normal on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays and feels a bit strange on Mondays and Fridays. We can't lose Mondays, can we? Presumably you don't really have a top-down idea. And you don't think that would work. You're going to let people use the room the way they want it, I suppose. Such a big topic, isn't it? And you've got BBC's four-day work report published yesterday, which is interesting in itself. I think the view that we've always had, and I say this with a bit of caution, the only, and I mean only marketplace for insurance 
in the world is here. And I mean that with all due respect to Bermuda, and I value Bermuda highly and our ability to work with them and the interesting markets that are being talked about in Singapore, but the only market is here, genuinely. And therefore, I think the value proposition has just gone up, not down. So the place where people can convene, can be solution-oriented, can meet, can have the conversation, is become more important. Do I think credibly we need to represent the way in which the underwriting room works and looks and feels? The answer to that question has got to be yes. So I think if we take a sensible view, let's say a sensible view is 20 years, I mean, you could argue whether it's 15 or 25. I think the ability for us to connect and present physically as well as digitally is still valuable. So I think we must get that right. I think practically it's going to take a little bit more time in 2023 to settle down what the work rhythm looks like. I'm a great promoter of flexible working. You and I have chatted about the difficulties in a past life. And you said you're talking to Andrew Horton, trying to run a business out of Australia that operates in the US and the UK. I'm just time zone complexity. So you have to think flexibly to ensure that you can work efficiently. And dare I say, the people that work for you can live. So flexibility is important. I'm utterly unconvinced that flexibility means two days per week. I mean, that's not flexibility. Flexibility is what does the job demand and how can we respect the opportunity for the individual? And it will be different in different situations and, and different take, circumstances. Be, yeah, before we switch on the microphones, you were talking about this is your time at QBE and you're talking about collaborating with your team to collectively agree that you're all going to work on well, weekends when the results were out because that was the only way of doing that's it. That's right. You, you and I were joking, Mark, when we, uh, I said, you know, when, when you live in Sydney, Monday's a joyful day. You're first up in the world. No one else is there to bug you on a Monday morning. Saturday morning's a nightmare because <laughs> the US and the UK's carried on. And on the quarter dates, we worked out that saying to everybody, turn up on a Friday didn't help because it meant that for those that were in Australia looking at consolidating quarterly reporting, it all arrived on a Saturday morning. So the idea was move the weekend on quarter days, do the weekend on a Thursday, Friday, work the Saturday, Sunday, no emails, no phone calls, you get a lot more done. So then maybe do a nine day consolidated period when you can get your quarter date work done and take different time periods off. Really smart thinking, really credible, different. And that's what I think we've got to start to do. What does flexible working look like? It isn't two days a week or three days a week. It's different. And we're not there yet. It's always existed, you know, some of those legendary stories about the war market during the first Gulf War being open. I think the underwriters underwriting from their gardens, I think, or here certainly working at the weekends because ships were sailing, they needed to get cover. Agreed. What's encouraged me as we've come into 23 is there's more of a sense of a market coming back. And I think that's what you were referring to in your opening remarks. So the good news is that there is some stability, some more sense of market, some more sense of community coming back. And I think credit to the leaders. I think the right position to adopt has been a little bit of patience. Let things settle. Don't push and pull people around too much. I think we'll see that play out through 2023. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. Our market is not a market you can turn around. We were talking about the BBC report and say, mm -hmm. we can do this four days per week. We can't do this four days per week. It very much depends on the circumstances, the time of year and the pressures that the businesses are under. So flexibility, it's in the word, isn't it? It is about being flexible rather and than being... both be, ways and, yeah. and it's about eating what's in front of you, I suppose. Agreed. Well, John, I think I've been through... All the questions I've got laid out in front of me, all I've got in my head. I don't know if there's a message to send to the listeners to send us on our way or not. So I think a few things really is that genuinely I'm excited. I think this is one of the great times, and there are many of them, to be in insurance. We've got two or three very exciting years ahead of us. So I just want 
people that are listening to know that, that we are listening as well. So if you've got ideas, if you've got thoughts, they can't be anything other than good. So come and talk to us. We're interested. We must get that right. I wanted to reassure people as well that we are really, really clear in our responsibilities. We talked about the digital agenda. We are really, really clear in what that looks to execute. And we will keep talking to the market. We had a great event on the 9th of February. We'll keep those going. So there'll be no surprises in that. And then the other topic we need to think about really carefully is talent. I think if we all believe the opportunity is there for us in insurance, we should join together and to think about how do we encourage the next generation to want to be as excited as I feel about our industry. So Good you, times. So you fully behind that. That's the London Market Group is retaking really that great. on. It's great. And we need to follow the lead through the London Market Group. And my view on that as well is we can be quite collective about it. We want people to think about us as an industry. Does it matter whether they work for Lloyd's or broking or underwriting? From the get-go, no. So why don't we give them a flavour, give them some exposure to who we are and what we do, then decide where they sit best. Well, John, thank you so much for your time and have a good 2023. I'm looking forward to it. Make thank sure you enjoy it. Enjoy the good times. <laughs> I will. Don't without you worry. feeling triumphalist. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.